At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite. Welcome to our newest season of Humane Podcast in 2021. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting ML and AI, data science, developer tools, and technical education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and this is Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to our show. Welcome back, listeners, to the Humane Podcast. Today, our guest is Eric Daimler, the CEO and co-founder of Conexus. This year, I got the chance to speak with Eric about the work that he's doing in AI and the work that he's previously done in the machine learning industry involved with the government and technology. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Uh, It's good to be here, David. Well, Eric, I know when we were speaking, you've done quite a few interesting things from math and technology. And today in the new advent of AI, if you could set for our audience, what are some of the things that you've done in technology that's gotten you to where you're at today? Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for having me. It's, it's terrific to be here. And I love to talk about these things. We could talk for quite some time. I've been fortunate enough to have chosen well and chosen early. I, I've been doing AI for uh, a few decades really can count it as decades at this point. You know, getting started building my first computer when I was nine and uh, working on uh, AI before it reached really the, the popular imagination of just the uh, ordinary press uh, that you see today. I've been an academic researcher, uh, I was faculty at, at Carnegie Mellon, and I spent time at Stanford and University of Washington, Seattle. I've spent time as an entrepreneur, which is what I'm again doing now for the sixth time. And I was also a, a you know, venture capitalist on Sand Hill Road for a bit before then uh, joining the Obama administration, where I was for the last year of the administration, uh, just in a really privileged role of acting as a, an advisor around all things uh, AI and robotics. So I, I think there are a lot of really talented people in AI in all those capacities, but I am really fortunate to be 
exposed to the range of these uh, domains or these expressions of AI from academia to uh, business to uh, public policy and, and serving the public. It's incredible to hear the work that you've done, how it's gone through the entire gamut of our industries and especially around public policy. I know in the last few administrations, there's been so much talk about AI first, digital first, data first. And we saw a lot of that progress under the Obama administration. And uh, now we've seen fast forward to our current administration and the next administration that AI is definitely seems to be the focal point. Um, why do you think now it is more important than ever that we lead with an AI strategy? Yeah, it, you know, it's really interesting to look back at the growth we've experienced as private citizens and think about that expression inside the government. So the really unique thing about a government is you can't leave behind any customers. Right? You can't you can't select the particular market you want to go after. The market is literally everybody. So we may have experienced uh, some boom in our, our use of the internet in the 90s, and then some different sort of expressions in the early 2000s. Whereas in the Bush years, in the you know, Bush 43, he did not have a, a big technology contingent. And as it was said, you could not go into a meeting, into a cabinet meeting and say, well, I don't understand uh, economics. You'd be left out of the room. Or I, I don't understand uh, law. You'd be left out of the room. But you could go into a room and say, I don't understand technology. That trend continued in government. These, you know, It's a big, big organization and a big set of entrenched uh, beliefs. So into the Obama administration, that, that continued. And you saw that expression that unfortunately found in its uh, you know, ultimate expression in you know, the, the initial tough rollout of healthcare.gov. That got corrected, not least because of the leadership and the terrific team behind Todd Park, who, who became the CTO, the US CTO around that time. And that, that was part of a big effort that Obama made to bring in more technologists into government, kind of understanding that we needed to have people that could go into a cabinet room and, and raise their hand saying, yeah, I, I, I do understand technology. That's been a big change uh, that we're fortunate to have continued to some extent. The, literally the last law that was signed during the Obama administration, and there's a fun story to be told about this, but just really quickly, quite literally on Inauguration Day, there was a rush to get through the appropriate physical security barriers that were put up to get to President Obama while he was still president to have him sign in the Capitol where he was right before the ceremony, the last law he would sign, which was to put in place forever this fellowship for innovators uh, inside the government to help uh, digital modernization of our U.S. government. John Paul Farmer was the guy that you know, saw that through. He's now CTO of New York City, and he deserves uh, credit for helping shepherd that to its its conclusion. And that that continues, we're fortunate to say, through the current administration, and we expect it to continue into the into the next administration. That sensibility around, uh, I don't know, I would say digital first, but kind of a digitally native environment is something that we expect to now be ex uh, expressed inside of the federal government and, and continue to trickle down into states, governments for all of our benefit. 
Now, as a leader, you've seen firsthand between public policy, between the private sector, between everywhere, so much innovation in technology, as you mentioned, uh, the evolution, how AI has gone through its waves of how digital policies are becoming mainstream. And as we're moving forward into the next few years, you have this very unique lens to see where technology can go. As you've mentioned, Eric, you've been on both sides of the coin, an investor, a technologist, and now you're running a new venture. Uh, what brought you to your new venture and what excites you for what you and your team are building? Yeah, I mean, one of the benefits of spending a lot of time in one industry is kind of the same that anybody would enjoy, which is being able to see just a little bit farther because some of these just are, are become visceral feelings like, and, and, and to some extent kind of feeling patterns, seeing patterns, experiencing patterns before. One of those right now, I will say, is seeing the limitation of AI. I began to sense this before even going in to the, the White House where I was talking to people about AI and what the benefits it could bring. To some extent, AI is underhyped, and that is in the totality of its expression. John Doerr is a famous investor. He was often criticized for, for saying the internet was underhyped in the early 2000s. And, and that was sort of a bold claim, you know, right before the crash to say it was underhyped. But 20 years later, we see that the largest companies by market capitalization are technology companies. That's just what the, the internet and our connectivity allowed. To say that the internet is underhyped is a little bit along those lines to say that the expression of these, these new technologies, these automations will be fantastically beneficial potentially to our society in ways that are really equally difficult to imagine even 20 years from now. What I see, however, is that the emphasis on these algorithms as some sort of secret spice is really overhyped, overblown. So as, as much as Dimitri and his team at DeepMind get credit for the work that they've done, and to some extent media-friendly in their uh, domination of the, the game Go, but in this most recent example of protein folding, you know they deserve some credit of actually providing some real benefit that's terribly exciting. But what, what we can't do is ignore how that came about. The only way DeepMind and those deep neural nets can be trained, so the only way that protein folding came about was because of all the failures of humans before. The machines got trained on human failures. Now, you can't use that particular deep experience of massive amounts of data on every human problem and expect to come out with these mind-blowing results. It just doesn't apply. So there's limitations on that sort of technology, and we should regard that as being a little overhyped. What is the next phase? What, what I'm addressing is this technology that is spun out of MIT that is based on discoveries in math. This is really foundational. There's really nothing more foundational than the math. This allows for an interconnectivity that's just unfathomable with previous generations of technology. You, you really can't have imagined what we can do if we are able to transform whole domains of knowledge and map them onto others. And this is really what's possible with this, this new type of math. You know, we're used to these innovations in physics all the time. You know, it's what empowers the, the continuity of Moore's law, for example. We're less used to discoveries in math. 
And that, that's what we're really pursuing. We're pursuing this discovery in math that enables global interconnectivity of knowledge. To say it another way, we are really at the intersection of probabilistic AI, like you would see in uh, DeepMind, and symbolic AI, which is what you'd see in an IBM Watson or a similar expert system. That merger is really going to be the transformation that powers the next generation. The previous generation, what you and I have seen a lot in the last 15 years has been analytics, has been data ingest, has been ETL, has been moving data and understanding how it can transform. But just like you're mentioning, uh, Eric, it's now moving into that next stage. And there's a lot of mathematics that's being invented, whether we're thinking of the quantum realm or we're thinking particularly of distributed architecture there's so much that's changing nowadays. And what's the part that your team is working on that you're finding to be the breakthroughs that is going to power uh, the next wave of AI or the next wave of computing? Yeah, you know, to have the MIT say it, we are, my firm represents the first ever spin out from their math department, which is funny to say. You know, if you look back to 1970, there was a discovery in math called uh, relational algebra. If it were not for relational algebra, you would not have had relational databases. Oracle and all those other companies that you know power Amazon and all those other companies. Right? This discovery in math that we represent is a discovery in this domain called category theory, categorical mathematics. Category theory is really at a level above all those other mathematics that transforms a problem from, say, geometry into another problem called, say, set theory. That happens all the time in other domains. It happens in mathematics all the time. And that's why uh, category theory was invented. What we do is we apply it to databases. So we can be, we'll say, above the cloud. We're agnostic between AWS and Azure and, and Google Cloud and, and anything else. That sort of transformation between data models, between data stores, is not where the technology currently is, but it's really where it's going. This is going to category theory. The math of category theory is going to really wipe wipe the slate clean of IT over the next ten to twenty years because it, it just fundamentally changes how we relate to data. Uh, you know, you might say the more math, more math is better. But if I was to distinguish for our children, I would de-emphasize uh, geometry, trigonometry, even and even calculus. You know, calculus is really the math of the nineteenth century. It worked really well for machines and, and, and farms, but most of us don't, and to some extent aeronautics, but most of us don't do those jobs anymore. The math of the future, the math of a digital age is going to be category theory. And fortunately, it's easier than calculus. It's not easy, but it's easier than calc. So that's where I would choose. If you had to choose between math, this is the math of the future. It's the math of the digital economy. It's so amazing to think about, as you mentioned, with databases, how many databases are out there today? Uh, last on DB Engines, there's over 350 databases from relational to multimodal to key value stores to document-based databases, and they're changing. And I think what's exciting, it's no longer about a unique architecture, but it's about optimization. And it sounds to me, a lot of the work that I'm doing at Single Store is about query optimization, query engine speed up. And it sounds to me that a lot of this category of mathematics is about optimization. You know, the, one of the, 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 the big transformations that we've had about data is that when I was an academic researcher, we were inventing uh, machine learning algorithms 
and testing them on data that we could see. And that makes a lot of sense when what big data used to represent is millions or billions of data points. But as you get into tens of millions, hundreds of millions, or trillions of data points, it really doesn't make sense to be reasoning about data. You're looking at one piece of data and, and testing it. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. You can't be doing that. You have to reason at a different level. This is what's changed. There, there really is something that is uh, flipped over, a switch that has been flipped, whatever you want to say. There's something that has fundamentally changed over the last, I will say, maybe just two to three years where we can know anybody that continues to reason about the, their individual data is going to be left behind. We, were, we Literally today, we were talking this morning with a large insurance company, one of the largest insurance companies in the world, and they recognize that the scale of their data ingesting, the, the rate at which they're ingesting data no longer works for their process. And they have to invent some fundamentally new way. They said that like, we, they can't just hire a hundred more people. It just doesn't work that way. You can't have just 10 more, t t uh, you know, 10 or 100 more people. You can't manual yourself out of these sort of problems. And that that's what this math represents. You can't reason about a trillion. You have to reason at a higher level. And that's what category theory allows. You know, I'll give you a story. You know, we were talking to a logistics company. It was during COVID, early, early in this COVID process. And this logistics company, they came to us because one of their clients actually had these ships all over the world. I had no idea how big these things were. Not, not necessarily ships, these companies. Tens of thousands of employees. Their client had tens of thousands of employees. Then they had hundreds of ships. Each one of those had tens of thousands of these shipping containers on them. It, it just, it, it, and so the question, this is the point about the reasoning about the data. The question was, hey, where is my personal protective equipment? Where's the PPE? And then where is it in the world? And then do I send it to Rome or Houston or, or, or Seoul? This is you know, funny for me or you know, just sitting at home thinking, well, I can go on Amazon and get some chrome dumbbells to my house in 48 hours. Right? How do you not know where your stuff is, your clients, your clients' stuff is in your ships? And the issue is, well, yeah, I mean, they, they could find it, but it, if, you, if you have that sort of inquiry, it takes a week, you know, to four or five days to find out you know, where my stuff is. It just, you can't do it instantaneously. And so you can't make business decisions quickly and you can't be responsive to business problems take advantage of, of changes quickly so what we do to tell you another another story what, what we do what you know where the future is going we worked with this one big ride sharing company and this ride sharing company they are a lot like many of the people listening to this where they will see these federated IT systems you know siloed IT systems you know despite this one company having very smart people, which it really did, despite this company having essentially an infinite balance sheet, but they could spend as much money on tech as they wanted to. Despite that, they had to have analyzed this fundamental, this you know, basic business problem. How do rates affect demand? Or how does, how does driver happiness affect customer happiness or what have you? City by city. So they could do it for New York City or they could do it for Boston, but they couldn't compare the whole Eastern United States, let alone the whole world. They had to do it city by city and then statistically compare. For any business, that cares about margins, you know, that, that had some inefficiency. It also slowed them down. So what they came to us for, they looked all over the world and we uniquely were able to solve the problem because why? It's in the math. Fundamentally, it's in the math. It's at a different level of math. It's at a higher level of math, a level of abstraction. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. 
With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We uniquely allow them to model the world in which they operated their business and make bigger decisions better and faster. You know, we're not the only ones doing this math but we're the only ones doing it in, in this enterprise enterprise software. So we were able to solve that. That's where the world is going. And the, the reason is because the data is just too big. You can't be looking at the data. You have to reason about it. You have to reason about the data at a higher level. That's the point from both of those stories. And I love both of those stories because that uh, company that you're talking about, which is, I know it's named on your site and our site as well, you know, it's a single <laughs> store. We work with Uber and, and we actually help them more in the concurrency side of being able to view the analytics of so many moving pieces at a time. And I think what you're saying is resonating not only with myself, but our audience, Eric, that every part of the data pipeline is just getting bottleneck after bottleneck because the math hasn't evolved and now it needs to. We need to speed up latency and queries and ingest and storage and compute and make everything bottomless. And it's, uh, it's an exciting new uh, world that we're moving into. Yeah, I, I really think it's the math represents a sort of quantum computing of computer science. You know, quantum computing is it gets a, a lot of press and it's fantastic, but that's kind of at the hardware level. Let's say at the software level, this is the quantum computing of software, this new discovery around category theory that's going to just power a whole new change in our environment as, as business people, as, as academics, as, and as citizens. And it also sounds like before 2020, you know, in the last couple decades, the technology has been trying to get there. It's been very imperative, but now it's becoming declarative. There's these set of rules that are being formed, the set of rules for understanding how architecture moves, how data moves, and the mathematics behind these systems that power Uber and telecoms and, and all these exciting companies. You actually give a name to it. Uh, what do you think uh, the future is? Uh, yeah. <laughs> a declarative future is a future that's formal. Yeah, we're formalizing. We, we th this is uh, useful for for all of the listeners, which is the building of the skill, kind of starting with the awareness of exactly what we want to have happen in a particular automated sequence. Exactly what we want to have happen. Lawyers are often trained in this, as are computer scientists. But it's a skill that everybody can develop and start with by being being aware. They can start being aware of, uh, of that. What, what actually happens in a set of rules, how you want that automation to happen. When a car, when an automated, we, we express this in computer science by saying, for example, if an automated car comes upon a crosswalk and they see a shadow, should the car stop, slow down, or keep on going at the same speed at the crosswalk? What do you want to have happen? You need to program exactly what do you want to have happen with, with some sort of variables? Those are you know, data constraints, or and you want to maintain the integrity. That's kind of the point when you talk about query optimization. You want to be guaranteeing the integrity of those queries, of those questions. 
no matter where the data goes, no matter where the question goes, no matter what, what type of car, what type of crosswalk, what, what geography, what have you, you want to got to maintain the integrity of those queries. And so the future of being formal is really where the world is going for all of our structures. That sort of declarative future, the future is formal. That's how all of us can participate in the future of AI. It's so fascinating because uh, my world is SQL all day, every day. And I think about SQL forensics and, and how you make queries better, whether queries are mobile first, whether queries are compute first, GPUs, ASICs, FPGAs, whatever hardware you want to insert. And the challenge is SQL is not everything. And is it good enough to do everything we need? And perhaps it sounds like the mathematics that your team is working on and a lot of researchers is part of that next evolution of SQL. Oh, you know, this is fantastic. It's funny to say this about uh, SQL, about SQL, that there are three ways we talk about to be solving data interoperability. You know, mismatched data doesn't like to talk to each other. This was, this was famously shown in healthcare.gov, in the initial rollout of healthcare.gov. Thank goodness it, it quickly recovered because of the, the brilliance and hard work of the team. You can you know, create a data silo. You know, this is what IBM Watson wants you to think. This is what SAP wants you to think. Put all the data inside our silo and then the world will be great. The problem is, as soon as you acquire a company, acquire a customer, acquire a supplier, you then have data outside the silo. And so you have the problem that starts all over again, just like your point about saying, uh, you know, SQL's not everything. There, There's a world outside of SQL. There's some 9 million SQL programmers around the world, but so there's a lot of it, but there's stuff outside of these silos. You know, the second way to solve the problem is a company like uh, Enigma, where you solve, they create a silo and then they sell a subscription to their data silo that they had created. That's a third, uh, one, one solution. Then there's another way, which is just this hopelessly manual way, which powers the growth of uh, all the consultancies, Tata, Wipro, Tipco, uh, not to say, not, not least which, Accenture, Deloitte, uh, Capgemini, they're, 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 their revenue growth over the past 20 years is highly, highly correlated. I encourage you to take a look at this sometime. Highly correlated to the rate of data growth. And that's because a big part of their business comes from this horribly manual data integration. So this is the point about data interoperability. That solution will come from this abstraction of mathematics which is fundamentally about this sort of meta layer of math called category theory. If I said it's the future, David, I think I did. I think it's the future, yeah. <laughs> I love it. And I think the future is a combination of both business and technology. You know, at, at Single Store, actually, a lot of our leadership team comes from Tibco. So we have a lot of the business leaders who are scaling with uh, some of the interesting technology that uh, you've worked on. And all this technology... I think uh, it's fascinating. Everyone talks about AI so much. I mean, we talk about on the show, you and I are talking about it today, but what is AI really? It's had so much hype, both over and under hype. The conversations I have is that a lot more attention needs to be around software engineering, not only machine learning, but can you share with us, what's your take being someone in the industry and what is AI really? You know, it's funny, I'll give you my definition, but I'll tell you a little story about how we got to this. You know, on one of my first days in the Obama White House, I said, I was in this very fancy room, it was an Indian treaty room, and around the table were the my peers at the executive branches, state, treasury, or defense, and then health and human services, and transportation, and DHS. And one of the first tasks I would think seemed pretty natural to me was, hey, hey, everybody, can we just give our definition of AI, our definition of robotics? 
right? It was pretty easy because we're what the job was at the executive was to coordinate research dollars among the executive branch. I mean, this is a bipartisan issue, right? Let's have government money be spent well, right? And so, so we're trying to coordinate across the executive and we're trying to start with what's the, the definition, right? Seems like a reasonable place to be. So we ask, we, we go to the State Department or Health and Human Services or the VA, and they're concerned about the collection of data. I need to collect data, I need to collect data, I need to collect data. That's really what they want to do. And then they'll have some humans interact with it because the automation of input to the State Department is, we'll say, premature. <laughs> you want to have humans be doing diplomacy. And Health and Human Services, special surgical robots, like, ah, let me input the data. You know, same with the VA. Let, we can automate the acquisition of data, but you know, that, we'll leave it right there. And then we go to the Department of Labor or Treasury, and they say, well, really, I collect a lot of data already, but I really need to process it. You know, these AI algorithms are fantastic, but I need to look for uh, fraud. I need to make, I need to ensure compliance. I need to just make sure things are proceeding as they should. So I need to be processing this data quite a bit. And then you go to uh, DHS or the DOD, or you go to uh, the Department of Transportation, and they're saying, look, I actually already processed the data. I collect the data. I already processed the data. I just need to act on it. I need to, I need to decide how I'm acting on it. Like, I can't stop the train for my figurative crosswalk example before and think I got to figure out how I act and keep people safe or, you know, affect the result that I want to affect that I've determined in hopefully a formal way, <laughs> as, as we'd say, if you were the DHS or the DIHL. So that initial conflict is actually already expressed entities around the cabinet office in the branches of government. That is that the AI is a totality of a system that senses, plans, and acts. It kind of learns from the experience, senses, plans, and acts, and learns from the experience. And the people will find their definition in their day-to-day -day life, even around AI. The traditional way people might think about it is in the planning. And so if you wanted to be really pedantic, you'd say, well, it's particular learning algorithms that deep learning is a, of which is kind of the, the most trendy expression, but that's a subset of machine learning, which is also a subset of ML. And they're also non-machine learning AIs. But that level of specificity is really only useful if you're an AI researcher. I'd say for the 99.9% .9 of us that are not AI researchers, you'll benefit from taking on the interpretation of AI being a system that senses, plans, acts, and learns from the experience. And it senses, plans, and acts from inputs, inputs that you and I are giving to it. Uh, I know one of the big breakthroughs we saw in the coding world in 2020 was OpenAI came out with GPT-3, which helped with a lot of autocomplete of text and autocomplete of code. So now we're seeing a lot of uh, skeletons and frameworks of development becoming more simple for developers. So it's incredible to see that just input can change the game. So AI is having breakthroughs. We're seeing the, the modernization, the standardization of these systems with the math, with the queries, with the optimization. Though there's a long way that we still have to come as we're now gearing up for the entire decade of 2020 plus, there's problems that have not been solved. You know, one of them's COVID, but there's other problems as well. What are some of the biggest problems that you're seeing for AI? You know, I, I think at a, a high level is that AI could be a dystopia or it could express a utopia. And it will only 
express one or the other based on our input or lack of input. So a big problem is our misinterpretation of what it is and how to get involved. I hope that my interpretation can provide value to people to, for them to find a place in the world for them to get involved. And that could be through education, that could be through the public policy discussion, that could be thinking in their own work how to formalize rules for automation, which is fundamentally what AI is. Part of that interpretation or misinterpretation uh, can be shown in things like the protein folding and the over-interpretation of that seeming magic. Also in GPT-3, you know, GPT-3 is certainly a contribution, but it came about, it was enabled. It wouldn't have existed if not for human failures. It got trained on everything that didn't work, just like the human protein. So this is something we can continue to realize as we, as we interact with these augmentation tools. And these augmentation tools, I think, are a good way to think about what we want to come from these augmentation tools. We want collaboration. So the fundamental driver in the next 10, 20 years is going to be collaboration. There's going to be interaction. The companies are going to win. The countries really are going to win are the ones that are going to be implementing AI with the, the most alacrity. We will all benefit by thinking in these contexts as we develop some standards, the standards for data provenance, lineage. There's a new effort by Kathleen Carley over the past 12 to 24 months that doesn't take a purely technical approach to cybersecurity, for example. She kind of embodies the belief that technical problems will not solely solve these issues. So she works in cyber social security. That's a fantastic framework to be thinking about many of these efforts around AI. And then, you know, lastly, I'd say for, for our children, for education, you know, I think the, the math issue is a big one. I also can give a shout out to FIRST Robotics. You know, FIRST Robotics, I'd say, is, is like the robotics expression of when I was a Boy Scout, when I got my Eagle Scout. I mean, you have these teams of children of, of, of all genders, they're, they're sitting there playing together and creating robots to solve a particular problem given to them by, by whomever, whoever the team lead is, organization lead is. It gets these kids comfortable with uh, interacting in a technical environment, but not necessarily needing to be a programmer in a basement, which is what I was. <laughs> Right? And this is what we need. We need. We don't need everybody to be a programmer in a basement. Like I would, you know, we need people to be playing a multitude of roles, and it helps uh, little girls and little boys get comfortable that they there's a lot of different places to play. There's not just a choice between computer science or an English degree, for example. So th those are the three things I think I would I would leave with. It's just these policy considerations, but these places you can get involved, and a way to focus our our educational efforts. I think one of the points in education that you share that I find so meaningful is that we hear all the time in the world today, learn to code, learn to program. We should all become computer scientists, data scientists, software engineers. And yes, it's a very exciting, intellectually rewarding career to program and build systems. They're both autonomous and human controlled. That is a lot more than only programming. I'm a big fan of Carnegie Mellon's ethical guidelines for AI. Uh, and that checklist, I, I work with students when we do our design thinking workshops and, and say, you know, it's not just about the data scientist and the software engineer. 
How about the lawyer and the product manager and the site reliability engineer and the end customer? Everywhere there needs to be that checklist. And building a human augmented future requires all these inputs and all these voices. I think as we're moving into the next decade, there's so much for AI that's going to change. We haven't discovered it all. What's, you know, beyond what you've shared with our audience here today, uh, Eric, going into 2021, are there any um, big aha moments that, or, or burning desires on the AI world that have been on your mind of late? Yeah, I, I think if I was going to try to leave uh, people with something around which they could take action, besides education, besides category theory, you know, besides getting involved and participating instead of just waiting to resist the adoption of technology, it's around this issue of uh, auditing AI and putting in circuit breakers for AI. Just because we can automate something doesn't mean we need to automate a whole chain without human intervention, without human oversight. We can get a lot of the benefits of this automation and augmentation while having multiple circuit breakers and multiple audits. This can actually encourage the adoption because it will breed trust in the ultimate result. I mostly want people to be engaged in the conversation around the adoption of this very, very powerful technology. We can't just wait for a whole bunch of of, of nerdy basement dwellers like myself to be coding up the future and then just hope that people like it based on our customer surveys or our de the degree of skill we bring to product management. I want, we need, we would benefit as business people, as computer programmers and society benefits by that exchange of ideas, by that exchange and communication of values. Well, Eric, thanks so much for uh, bringing your ideas and your values today to the show. Listeners, it's been Eric Daimler, the CEO and co-founder of Connexus. Thanks for joining us on Humane. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. Did the episode measure up to your thoughts on ML and AI, data science, developer tools, and technical education? Share your thoughts with me at humanepodcast.com forward slash contact. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe and leave a review, and listen for more episodes of Humane. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.